God told Abraham that his descendants would go down to Egypt, and he told them that they would not stay in Egypt, but rather God would bring them out, and he would give them great possessions. The sons of Jacob here indicate that they were obviously familiar with those promises. They are not moving to Egypt. They are staying in Egypt as strangers for a time. And that's very significant. God's people are always strangers in the land of Egypt, if we can use that phrase. We are never to settle in. We are never to get too comfortable. As the old song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That is the attitude all people of faith must maintain. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God's people are always strangers in the land of Egypt. We are travelers and sojourners only. That's a consistent theme in the Bible and a perennial struggle for the people of God, trying to live and witness in a fallen world. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 47. Let's jump right into the text. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, the use of the word sojourn there connects the migration to Egypt with the prophecy spoken to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Way back in chapter 15, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God told Abraham, that his descendants would go down to Egypt, and he told them that they would not stay in Egypt, but rather God would bring them out, and he would give them great possessions. The sons of Jacob here indicate that they were obviously familiar with those promises. They are not moving to Egypt. They are staying in Egypt as strangers for a time. And that's very significant. God's people are always strangers in the land of Egypt, if we can use that phrase. We are never to settle in. We are never to get too comfortable. As the old song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That is the attitude all people of faith must maintain. Now, in the book of Hebrews, this theme is picked up and expanded upon at some length. The apostle says, 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, speaking of Abraham here, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham, the father of faith, was a traveler. He was living in tents. He never settled down. He was never truly at home in this world. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That is the pattern and the picture of faith. The apostle goes on in Hebrews 11 to say, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The staff was a symbol of sojourning. The apostle was saying that Jacob was a traveler right up to the end of his life. He gave his last words and blessings, as it were, over the head of his staff. Even in death, he was preparing to travel. He was a sojourner in life and in death. That's what the apostle is saying. And that's a very important theme in the life of faith. This idea of sojourning also called to mind the need to be charitable and merciful towards earthly travelers. The fact that they had lived in Egypt for 400 years as strangers made the Israelites very sensitive to the vulnerability of travelers. So we have all these verses in the Old Testament reminding the Jewish people to be kind to strangers. We think of Exodus 22:21 for example, which says, "You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." So, this idea of sojourning is deeply embedded in our spiritual DNA. It reminds us that we must be kind to travelers, to strangers, to displaced peoples of every kind, because we are travelers. We are strangers. We are displaced people of a spiritual kind. This world is not our home, and therefore we are always vulnerable to the shifting whims and humors of the crowd. And that, in turn, should make us sympathetic to those who are passing through, those with no permanent rights, those who have nowhere else to go. Travelers watch out for one another as they meet each other on life's hard and winding roads. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because it feels like there's two implications for what you're saying here, and I want to take a minute and tease that out. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that this theme of being a sojourner or an alien or, or stranger is supposed to remind us not to get too attached to the world, and it is also supposed to encourage us to be friendly and welcoming to people like immigrants and refugees. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we're not guessing here because God makes that application again and again and again over the course of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 10, 19, for example, he commands the people of Israel, love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So there's the principle and the application all in one verse. You were sojourners in Egypt, therefore be kind and merciful and generous to the sojourners in your midst. Now I'll read the NIV version of that verse too, because some of our listeners might not be familiar with that word sojourners. The NIV has it, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So a sojourner is a foreigner or an immigrant. It is someone who has come here from somewhere else, and God says that his people are to be particularly kind to such people 
because God has been kind to us in our experiences of exile. God sustains us in a foreign land. So we, of all people, should appreciate that. And reciprocating that is part of our witness in the world. And to be clear, it doesn't appear that this is an optional part of our witness either. In Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, God instructs Moses to have the people say this out loud. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. So it was literally part of the education of Israel. Be kind to the sojourners in your midst or else. Yeah, I I like that. I always learn better when there's an or else at the end of the instructions. Yeah, me too. (laughs) All right. So we're supposed to be kind to the sojourners. Get that. Uh, The foreigners, the immigrants in our midst. But what about the other piece? What about the don't get too attached to Egypt piece? Yeah, that's a, a huge part of how this pattern plays out in the Bible. So as Bible readers out there will probably know, the family of Jacob went down to Egypt. They survived the famine, as we're just about to hear, and they continued to grow and prosper. They went from being a family to being a nation inside the nation of Egypt. Then fast forward a couple hundred years, and the Egyptians begin to be afraid of the Israelites. The Israelite birth rate is way higher than the Egyptian birth rate, so they try and repress the Hebrew people, and they institute all kinds of harsh and cruel measures to keep them down. And that's how the book of Exodus begins. Yeah, exactly right. So we get Moses hidden away in the basket by his mom and his sister, and a daughter of Pharaoh finds him and adopts him as her own child. So Moses grows up inside the very heart and center of Egyptian culture. He would have been rich. He would have been powerful. He would have been well-educated. He was the ultimate cultural insider but he gave it all up to throw in his lot with the people of God. That's faith. Hebrews 11, 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. So this idea of leaving the inside track of the culture and going to the outside to bear the reproach of Christ is a major theme in the New Testament. In fact, in just a few chapters later on in the book of Hebrews, the apostle says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Well, that's so cool. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And that goes all the way back to this story in Genesis 47. Well, yeah, this is where the pattern begins, but it grows and expands and is illustrated again and again and again over the pages of Scripture. All right, that's super helpful. Let's jump back in now to the text at verse 5. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil 
have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. This scene is masterfully depicted. Jacob is a portrait in elderly wisdom and gravitas. Now, we don't know for sure how old this Pharaoh was. Joseph says that he has become a father to Pharaoh, which may indicate that this is a young man. And Joseph has been his tutor and advisor, and that may well be the case. But here it is clear that he is awed by the presence of Jacob. Jacob teaches Pharaoh and blesses Pharaoh. Well, we know for a fact that in the Bible, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Pharaoh views Jacob as a sage and a prophet, and he listens to Jacob like a man would listen to a survivor from a bygone era. Jacob says that he's 130 years old, but that that's nothing compared to the years of his father's. And this is a reminder to us that these stories take place during a hinge in the ages. After Noah's flood, the ages listed in Scripture go steadily downwards. But the family of blessings seems to be experiencing this diminishment at a reduced pace. And that itself may be an effect of walking so closely with the Creator God. We don't know. What we know is that Pharaoh is awed by Jacob. And we know that Jacob views the world from a unique and elevated perspective. He says that life is shorter and harder than once it was. Note that. See, the Bible teaches the very opposite of evolution. Evolution of the biological, philosophical, and social varieties espouses a belief in constant progress. The world is always getting better and life is always reaching higher. And this, of course, over time encourages a sort of chronological snobbery, to steal a phrase from C.S. Lewis. We tend to think that the old are dumber, duller, and dimmer. They live downstream from our times and attainments. But the view of the Bible and the view of the ancient world was actually the opposite. The Bible sees fallen humanity as being in slow and terminal decline. Now, we may have better gadgets and superior technology than did previous generations, but technology is cumulative. All we do is add a little bit to what the people before us discovered and invented. That doesn't mean we are smarter than them. Is Elon Musk smarter than Albert Einstein or Galileo or Johann Kepler? Or is he simply standing on the shoulders of their achievements? In the Bible, the ancients are seen as a source of wisdom. They are viewed as further up the mountain we have fallen from and thus considerably closer to God. That's a way of thinking that perhaps we need to recapture. The story continues in verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph 
provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Here, we see that everything God foretold in those boyhood dreams of Joseph has come to fruition. Joseph has become the savior and the protector of his people. Verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones." And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now, concerning Joseph's economic policy, Derek Kidner says helpfully here, it was axiomatic in the ancient world that one paid one's way so long as one had anything to part with, including, in the last resort, one's liberty. Israelite law accepted the principle while modifying it with the right of redemption. So, Joseph isn't innovating here. He was simply acting wisely in accordance with the accepted practice of the region. The net result of this policy was that all the land of Egypt, apart from the land owned by the priesthood, became the possession and property of Pharaoh, and the people were reduced to the status of tenant farmers. Verse 27 goes on to say, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So, the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Now, hear that. Jacob was 130 years old back in verse 9. 
Well, here in verse 28, he's 147 years old. Remember that the Bible skips a whole lot of mundane detail. We're getting the highlights in the condensed version of events. And just notice again that the patriarchal lifespan was about twice as long as our lifespan. More than that, actually, if you think about Isaac and Abraham. Isaac lived to 180, Abraham to 175. So when you hear that people found Sarah very attractive in her 60s, I don't think that detail needs to embarrass us. (laughs) My goodness, if people are living more than twice as long as we are, then Sarah at 60 looked 30 or maybe 25, and Abraham at 100 might have looked 50 or 45. When we read these stories, we just have to keep some of those details present in our minds. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. Now, in general, I love the ESV, as you can tell. We do the podcast from the ESV. I have no plans to change that. But this is not a super helpful translation. The NRSV has verse 30 this way. When I lie down with my ancestors, comma, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. That is far closer to the original Hebrew, and it helps preserve the essence of what Jacob is saying. He is not saying that he is looking forward to lying down with his ancestors in the burial cave. He is saying that when he is with his ancestors, put his body in the burial cave. Jacob had a hope that went way beyond the grave. Verse 31, and he said, swear to me, and he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, maybe you know that our English translations of the Old Testament are based on the Hebrew Masoretic text, whereas the Bible of the early church was actually the Greek translation known as the Septuagint or the LXX. However, in Hebrew, the original text did not have vowel pointings. I don't know how much you know about Hebrew, but Hebrew, all words are made from a three-consonant stem. And originally, they didn't have vowel pointings. And, and so this word here, translated as bed, can also be staff, depending on how you point the consonants, what, what, what vowel pointings you put in. Which is why, in the New Testament, when this scene is recalled, it has Jacob bowing over his staff, not his bed. You remember that? Hebrews eleven twenty one says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So which is it, bed or staff? Well, with all due respect to the incredible Bible scholars who produce our English versions, if I have to choose between a 20th or 21st century English scholar and a 1st century Hebrew-speaking Torah-reading apostle, I'm going with the apostle. I think the point is the one we made earlier. I think the apostles are picturing Jacob as a sojourner to the very end, for all of his 147 years. This man was a traveler. Thus, it is very appropriate that he speaks his final words, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Thanks be to God. Well, I love that. Jacob was a traveler to the very end, and he was already thinking about his return to the land of promise after he died. 
What a perfect picture of the life and faith of the believer. Yeah, exactly right. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And like Abraham and like Jacob and like all true believers, Old Testament and new, we are looking forward to a better country, a heavenly country, a holy city whose architect and builder is the Lord. Amen. And we're going to be talking more about that in the series we have planned right after this one. Isn't that right? Yeah. Following our walk through the book of Genesis, we're going to transition into First and Second Peter. And Peter actually opens that correspondence by alluding to this pattern that we've been talking about today. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He refers to them as pilgrims, strangers, exiles, refugees. He picks up this imagery and he uses it to teach them how to be faithful and holy in a foreign land. Hmm, that sounds fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to hearing how our story ends in the book of Genesis, which we'll be talking about in the weeks and episodes to come. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 